If you have your Bibles, please open to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we are in our Advent series um, titled Hope for the Holidays. Um, as I told you last week, for those that might not be familiar with Advent, um, Advent means coming or longing or expecting. It ties in all of these things together of our long-expected waiting and hoping for Jesus. It symbolizes our present situation as God's people as we wait on Christ's return. So we engage with all of God's people from all history in the Old Testament as they awaited the appearing of the Messiah. And now we, knowing the Messiah, Christ Jesus, we now wait on His return. Now last week we discussed the hope of Advent. We talked about how we learn hope through patience and waiting. We have to wait like the farmer as he waits on the crops. Um, we have to wait on all kinds of things in our life, and we learn hope through waiting. We also discuss the hope that God's Word is meant to bring us as we wait on the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we talked about the power of hope, the power that hope brings us. As Paul ends Romans 15 by saying this doxology, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we have this God-empowered hope, and this morning we're going to look at the hope of forgiveness. The hope of forgiveness. Advent brings us hope that we can find forgiveness in Jesus. Now Advent reminds us that as Christ's coming and that Christ's coming and Christ's return should have a sobering effect on us because it forces us to deal with the fact that we are sinners. And one day we must stand in front of Jesus. So that should have a sobering effect. Now, as I did last week, I want to read a short excerpt from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's God is in the Manger, Reflections on Advent and Christmas. And there's one entry um, that I read this week that is that is called an un-Christmas-like idea. An un-Christmas-like idea, because a lot of times at Christmas, all we want to think about is joy, hope, peace, all of these really great and bright ideas, which are all true, but they're only true, they're only good and joyful and true because they are shaded against the backdrop of something that's very dark and very real. You notice that the stars are only out when the night is dark. They only shine brightly because of the blackness of the background. And the blackness of the background of Christmas is the idea of God's impending judgment. God's judgment is coming, and even Christmas points us to the fact that even Christmas itself is an indicator of God's judgment because a Savior had to come. A Savior had to come. Or there would be no hope. So listen to what Bonhoeffer says. Remember, he's writing most of these from prison, awaiting execution from Adolf Hitler. He says this, an un-Christmas-like idea. He says, when the old Christendom, speaking of the old writings from the, the earlier 2,000 years of church history, when the old Christendom spoke of the coming of, again of the Lord Jesus, it always thought first of all of a great day of judgment. And as un-Christmas-like as this idea may appear to us, it comes from early Christianity and must be taken with utter seriousness. 
The coming of God is truly not only a joyous message, but is first fearful news for anyone who has a conscience. And only when we have felt the fearfulness of the matter can we know the incomparable favor of God. God comes in the midst of evil, in the midst of death, and judges the evil in us and in the world. And in judging it, He loves us. He purifies us. He sanctifies us. He comes to us with grace and love. He makes us happy as only children can be happy. He says, we have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect. Here it is. That the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim on us. We have to remember that at Christmas. That the God of the universe draws near to us in Jesus and as the ruling sovereign of the universe lays claim on us. And that can be a fearful thought for those that do not know the hope of forgiveness. So let's read Hebrews chapter 9 and let's not ignore during the Christmas season, the dark backdrop that brings good news of great joy. And this is what Romans, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in the middle of verse 26, at the beginning of the sentence, this is what it says. The writer of Hebrews says this, but as it is, he, that's Jesus, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. So as we think about the hope of forgiveness, I want to begin with the first point that you see in verse 27, and that is this, the universal need of forgiveness due to sin. The universal need of forgiveness due to sin. Look what it says in verse 27. He says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now this very short verse is loaded with incredible claims. The first claim is that all men, all women, all people must die. Now that is a universal truth claim. There is no escaping death. Just think about it for a second. It is appointed for all mankind to die. Every person in this room in a hundred years will be dead. All of you. There is no exception. There is no escape. All of us must die. That is the universal claim of this text. But this begs the question of why must all people die? Some might say, well, it's just the way of the world, that 
all living organisms must have an expiration date? Well, the answer, though, in the Bible is much deeper than that because to die physically is not the only death there is. There is also spiritual death, separation from God for eternity. And that answer goes all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles in Genesis. So listen to a summary of how the, how the world began. Genesis begins with God creating all that there is, speaking it into existence, and God ruling over all that He has made. And in the beginning, God also creates all that we see, and He creates at the end of all of creation, man and woman in His image, and places them in the garden to reflect and display His glory in creation. Adam and Eve, created in His image, were to rule over and steward all that God has made as His image bearers and as His representatives. At that time, they lived in a perfect world. They had a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relation. They had a perfect relationship with God, where they walked with Him side by side, day by day. They had a perfect relationship with each other where they loved, nourished, and cared for one another in perfect harmony. And they had a perfect relationship with all of the rest of creation where they worked the land and cared for the earth. They had perfect freedom. They could eat from any tree in all of the earth except for one tree. The the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them that on the day they eat this fruit, they would die. Now, everything was right in the garden. Everything was right. No sin, no shame, no sickness, no death. None of that. But something tragic happens in Genesis 3. We call this theologically the fall of man. Adam and Eve are approached by a deceiving serpent who convinces them that God has been lying to them. That if they wanted to truly be like God, then they would eat from this one forbidden tree. The issue is, though, God had already told them that they were like Him. You are the only beings created in my image. You are like me in some sense. And they alone, uh, humanity out of all of creation, were made in His image. But they believed the lie, took the fruit, and ate it. And in that moment, humanity became not only lawbreakers not only guilty of the sin of law-breaking, disobeying God's commands, they became guilty of becoming lawmakers. You see, that's what happened. Sin entered the world as Adam and Eve decided that they themselves were God. After all, sin is ultimately us substituting ourselves for God. They were basically saying, God, you don't make the laws, we make the laws. We know better than you. We are better than you. And because of our first parents' disobedience, all people are sinners by our own choosing. R.C. Sproul once said, said, every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. That's what sin is. Us substituting ourselves for God, not simply breaking God's law, but telling God that, no, we make them. We are all powerful. And as a result, our sin ushered in God's judgment and curse. So it brought brokenness. It brought separation. It brought judgment. And ultimately, it brought death. 
And now all people are under God's wrath and judgment for their sin. And so in verse 27, the writer of Hebrews says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Death and judgment are both an appointment that no one can or will escape. Every human being made in the image of God, bearing an eternal soul, will stand before God for their sin. And sin is the reason that there is judgment. That is the reason. The Bible says that we will be judged for every action, every thought, and every motive. According to God's righteous and holy standards found in His Word, the Bible says that all are under a curse for breaking His law. This is why there's a universal need for forgiveness. There is no man, woman, boy, or girl that is not born into sin of our own choosing. We are rebels at heart. Now let's do a little exercise using the Ten Commandments. I'll just use a few of them. God gave His law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and we are guilty of breaking them all. Let me just give you an example. If you've ever, you don't have to raise your hand, but anyone here ever told a lie? You ever deceived someone else? Tried to avoid accountability for your actions? So you tell someone a lie, you do something, you say something that you know is not true in order to protect yourselves? That is called lying, it is called deceiving. What I see is a lot of guilty people. Yes, I've lied. I've lied. What about this one? What about the Bible says thou shalt not lie, the Bible also says thou shalt not steal. You ever taken something that did not belong to you? It gets really sticky, right? Because we know in an economic society, you can steal by actually not even taking a physical object. You can steal by stealing time from your employer. You can steal by misusing something that, someone, that, someone, that belongs to someone else. Well, let's do it this way. The Bible says, what about uh, committing adultery? You go, whew, glad, I'm, glad I can avoid that one. Well, you know, Jesus raised the bar on that. He says, if you've ever looked lustfully at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're guilty. All right? What about murder? You're like, oh, Jacob, I've never murdered anybody. And I'm very glad, by the way. Um, I'm very glad, by the way, but Jesus raised the bar again. And Jesus says, if you've ever had an angry thought against your brother or harbored bitterness against them, you've committed murder in your heart. Well, let me just say that what this means is, by your own admission, if you're being honest right now, that you are a lying, stealing, adulterer, murderer at heart. That's every person in this room. And it's funny because it's, it's true. Now, I just want us to all get this picture that the Bible says that if you're guilty of breaking one of God's law, then you're guilty of breaking them all. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament alone and the Bible says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. You're guilty. Every person in this room, you might think that Christianity is full of hypocrites and all of this other stuff, and you are right. Yeah, and you are too. Every person in this room is universally accountable to God and guilty for their sin, and you cannot escape it. This is the background that all are under the curse of the law. That is the bad news. That is the big black sky by which the Christmas light shines. That you are a guilty sinner before a holy and righteous God. And you will stand before him in judgment one day. It is appointed for a man to die once. And you die because of your sin. 
And after this comes judgment. And that judgment, by the way, there's no escaping it. That judge knows every thought, every motive, every deed, every word. You cannot get away from him. You can fool me. I can fool me. I fool me all the time. We're guilty. But notice, secondly, what this text tells us. This text also points to the gracious provision of forgiveness in Jesus. That is the great news of the gospel. Look at verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now that is glorious news. And this is why the good news should ring out with joy from every heart. Because Jesus alone can bring forgiveness. The good news of the gospel is that God did not leave us in our sin or abandon us. No, not even in the garden. He came to Adam and Eve and promised them after they rebelled against him that another would come who would crush the head of the serpent and make all things new and would restore all of those relationships that had been broken. Their relationship with God that was destroyed. Their relationship with each other that was now marred by sin and blame and shame in their, in their relationship with creation that was now severed and another would come and what they didn't know though was who that deliverer would be they didn't know so through across thousands of years God kept making promises and what they did not expect is that God himself would come to do what he had promised to do that the father sent his son Jesus to save his people by his grace this is all of grace, the free, undeserved favor of God. Think about this in the Christmas story, that God was working on our behalf to do what only He could do because we could not do anything to remedy this situation. You cannot fix the fact that you are a broken rebel separated from God. You have no way to make that relationship right. You can't do good deeds to get it done. God is holy. One sin will separate you from Him for eternity. That is the blazing glory of the holiness of God. No, it only God can remedy this situation. And it is only done by God's grace and mercy that comes through Jesus. Jesus appeared once for all, as Hebrews says, at the exact appointed time to die for our sin, bearing the wrath of God and the judgment of God that we deserve. And the whole context of Hebrews is that Jesus is a better sacrifice than all of the bulls and goats that were ever offered in the Jewish temple year in and year out. Jesus was able to offer himself once for all to do away with the judgment of our sin forever. On the cross, Jesus bears the wrath of God for our sin, for our law-breaking and our law-making to put it away once for all. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God's appointed time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
those of us that are accountable to the law, that's all of us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So hear me, what makes the Advent story so joy-filled and hope-filled is that we see the culmination of all of God's promises to send a Savior, not to save us from our political trouble or from our socioeconomic peril, but to graciously save us from the greatest need we have, which is from the wrath of God for our sin. That is the gospel message. Listen to what Isaiah says. As, there, as, as Isaiah promises, this is what's going to happen when this suffering servant appears. Isaiah says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities. Upon him was the judgment that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And listen to this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's the father being satisfied in the atoning sacrifice of the son. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. And he says, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is why Jesus came. This is what was promised in the Christmas story when the angel appeared in Matthew 1 to Joseph. And it says, and the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is, is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall bear the sin of my people. Or what God said in Luke 2, what the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, I bring you good news, that's the gospel of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior. Listen, this is... This is what's happening in the Christmas story. This same theme continues as Jesus grows up, begins his ministry. He's bringing salvation and forgiveness to people for their sins. In John 1, he goes out to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why Jesus came. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. This is why Jesus comes, to take away our sins, your sins, personal, not the sins of nations, the sins of people, though nations do sin. Jesus comes to die for sinners, your sins and my sins, and only he could do it. Jesus alone is the provision 
for our need. He's, think about this. This is the, the, the mystery of the incarnation. God in the flesh. God of the universe coming in Jesus Christ, His Son. A human being. He's fully God, Jesus, so He can take hold of deity. He's fully man, so He can take hold of man. And He alone can reconcile the two together. There is no other provision. As one commentator said, just think about our sin. Sin must be a terrible thing to require no less a sacrifice than, a, than the Son of God in the flesh. There could be no other sacrifice. Not, a blood, not the bull, not a goat, not an angel. It required the sinless Son of God dying in your place. And this is why Jesus came. So the bad news is really bad. And the good news is gloriously good. Every person has a universal need of forgiveness. And Jesus has been provided for all. And that leads me to my final point, the, need, the necessity of personal faith in Christ. See, you have a need. You're a sinner, guilty. Jesus has been provided, but how does that sacrifice, how is that credited to my account? And the answer in the Bible is by faith in Christ. Listen, look at verse 28 of Hebrews, our text. He says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, follow the logic of this verse. Look at this verse and let's ask a few questions so you can follow the logic. Here is the first question. Who has borne the sins of many? What does the text say? Christ. Christ has borne the sins of many. For Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. It's Christ. Who will come a second time to bring them salvation? Christ. That's what he says. He will appear a second time. Who is Christ coming again to save? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's who Jesus is coming again to save. Those who are eagerly waiting. Now here's the question. Who are they waiting for? Who are they waiting for? The answer is Christ Jesus. Jesus is coming to save those who are waiting on Christ Jesus. This is personal faith in the resurrected and reigning Lord. Just like the Apostle John said in John 3.36. Listen. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Just like the Apostle Peter said in Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus that salvation comes. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator that stands between God and men, and it is Christ Jesus. Just like Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. All of these texts demonstrate the necessity of personal faith in Jesus. 
hear me, you are a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. He died for your sins as a substitute. You must receive him by faith. This is not something a parent can do. This is not something a church can do. This is not something the Pope can do for you. This alone comes to us through faith in Jesus. Now, second, notice the Advent language of this section. Christ appeared the first time to put away our sins. They were waiting on the Messiah. And right now, His people are eagerly waiting for His return when He brings the fullness of our salvation to us. Jesus will come again, not to save churches or organizations or countries, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Hear me. One of the clearest marks of those who belong to Jesus, one of the defining characteristics of those who belong to Jesus is those who desire and long for His return. If you have no desire to see Jesus, no desire to be in His presence, no desire to have your Savior, then you probably do not know Him. Listen, the desire, that desire and longing for Jesus shows up in our lives by us living in ways that please Him. By showing that we are seeking to be free from the sin from which we needed to be saved. The Bible calls that walking in holiness. That we live holy lives waiting on Jesus. I want you to see this connection. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Turn to Titus chapter 2. You have to see that there is a tremendous connection in the Bible of belonging to Jesus, waiting for Jesus, and living lives that demonstrate we no longer want to be living in the sin by which we needed to be saved. If you're in Titus 2, say amen. Titus 2, look at verses 11 through 14. Notice the connection here. This is speaking of Jesus coming to save us. He says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. This is Jesus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this salvation does something. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So we've been saved. Jesus has come to save us. And now we live holy lives while we are doing what? Verse 13, while we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. This is why Jesus came and this is why we wait. Now I want to end with a gospel invitation. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that is the sacrifice of Jesus, 
Out of love for the world, out of love even for rebel sinners, God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, faith in Jesus, whoever believes in Him will not perish. That's judgment. That's eternal separation. Who will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the heart of the gospel message. Advent brings the hope of forgiveness. The hope of rebel sinners being reconciled to the Father by having our sin and judgment laid upon Jesus and His perfect righteousness laid upon us by grace through faith. That is the gospel message that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and on the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. Now let me share one word of warning. If Jesus is speaking to you today, do not delay. If Jesus is calling you to salvation and forgiveness now, come to Him. The Bible says, if today you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. If Jesus is calling you, receive Him by faith today. I'll close with a quote from R.C. Sproul his book, The Holiness of God, because this is something all of us need to hear. It's a word of warning. Hear this. God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite. And God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to His patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. Do not presume upon the grace of God that I'll get right with Jesus when I get done having my fun with sin. God never promises his grace to be infinite. Today, if you hear his voice, come to Jesus. Because you are a sinner. You are guilty. The only provision is Jesus, and He provides grace to those who receive Him by repentance and faith. This is the backdrop of Christmas. Christmas itself is pointing to the very judgment of God. And there's, it's only good news to those who receive forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray right now that You would speak clearly to our hearts and that we would take seriously the gospel message. That, Father, we are rebel sinners who are separated from you. And our only hope is to find forgiveness through Christ. Because one day we will stand before you. And on that day, I do not want to stand in my sin. But I want to stand in the righteousness of Jesus, knowing that my sin has been placed on him. So, Father, speak, move, act. And, Father, may we find repentance and faith today. We ask this in Jesus' name.